I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here, just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, If you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, January 7th, 2013. Looking at the uh, things we need to cover today, um, this is practically two shows, so talk about what we're going to do. It's going to take us a couple programs to work our way through all this. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Uh, The Bible is not a wax nose. Uh, I remember uh, when I was growing up, one of the Inspector Clouseau movies, yeah. Remember Peter Sellers uh, when he would uh, be Inspector Clouseau? Man, he was great. Nobody has been able to top him, by the way, when it comes to being uh, the idiotic, ridiculous, hilarious Inspector Clouseau. But in one particular episode, um, Inspector Clouseau, the master of disguise, you have to say that with sarcasm, the master of disguise, had had dressed himself up as a German dentist. And, I mean, he had this huge putty wax nose and false teeth and a wart and... It was absolutely hilarious because uh, Chief Inspector Dreyfus had gone berserk and has concocted a plot to destroy the world with some laser beam or something like that. But, of course, in the course of doing that, he came down with a toothache and he needed a tooth extracted. And and that was Inspector Clouseau's in to... Uh, you know, to solve the crime. Uh, anyway, to you know, to save the day. And um, when Clouseau got into um, the castle where uh, Chief Inspector Dreyfus was with his sore tooth, uh, and um, you know, he was wearing this ridiculous outfit, and it was way too warm. And as a result of it, this nose that he had concocted this putty wax nosy thing that he was wearing began to melt and to droop and 
And so when when I say the Bible is not a wax nose, I can't help but think about that particular um, movie parallel there. And the idea is this, is that people are taking the Bible nowadays and bending it into all kinds of fun shapes and and making it look like it says this thing or that thing or another thing without any concern whatsoever about what the Bible really says in context. The Bible doesn't have multiple interpretations. Um, you know, the, one of the, uh, the ways I like to teach it when I uh, have an opportunity to uh, teach publicly on the topic is that you know, language means things. You know, uh, We use language to convey messages all the time. And uh, we live in a postmodern era, which is not a good thing, that uh, basically takes words and turns them into wax putty noses that end up melting or bending or you know, in all kinds of shapes. And so the, the idea is this, is that um, those of you who have children, okay, and uh, they're old enough to do chores, you know what I'm talking about here, um, have you ever found yourself in the position where you have had to do what most people would consider to be absolutely crazy. Find yourself in that position where you've got to run off. You've got to leave the house to do an errand. And you you now find yourself in the bizarre position of having to leave your children instructions for the things that they are to accomplish and do while you run this errand because the last thing you want them doing is watching television, playing video games, or things like that. You, you know what I'm talking about if you're a parent, okay? And this, you, by the way, this is just a scenario that is that has failure written on it from the word go. But anyway, so what you do is, uh, you know, you decide that you're going to leave children with, you know, with written instructions. Maybe it's one of those situations where you're at, you're, you've, you're late coming home from work. And so you've left a note on the kitchen table and the note goes something like this. Dear loving children, this is your father or your mother speaking. Um, I will be. Uh, I won't be home for another hour. And so while I'm away, I would like you to one clean your bedrooms, two, uh, you know, you know, uh, go outside and you know, and rid the yard of dog poop or something. You know, you, you get what I'm saying. You know, you you leave a list of things to do. Okay, um, no television, no video games, and when you're finished with these said chores, I want you to work on your homework simple stuff, right? Okay. Not hard to do. Okay. But if one of your children decides to play that postmodern funny word game, okay, where they say, well, okay. So they come home, they take a look at the, uh, the note there and they, they uh, interpret it via postmodern uh, philosophy and ideas regarding language. And they go, you know, mom's or dad's wording here is, well, a little bit vague, I'm not sure if I should if I should interpret this using a uh, Western capitalist male uh, overlay, or if I should maybe in, interpret it in light of Marxist feminist theology. I'm not sure. You know, this idea here, clean your room. I mean, you see, you know, you got to understand this is obviously a first world problem, not a third world problem. And so, you know, I'm not sure if that really means what it what it looks like it means. So maybe it means something else. I mean, you, you got to understand that uh, in third world nations, um, you know, children don't necessarily have their own rooms. And so mom or dad can't possibly mean that they want us to actually, you know, 
clean our room. You, you get what I'm saying, okay? So you start playing funny word games and stuff like that. But the language that you used was clear, unambiguous, and conveyed a very specific message. Not multiple messages, but a singular message. Clean your room, right? So the idea is this, is that the Bible, God the Holy Spirit, writing and revealing things to us about himself, how things have gone wrong in the world, what his will for us is, um, you know, things of that nature, uses language. And believe it or not, the Bible really isn't all that hard to get. It's really not. Although there are portions of it that can be a little bit vague and fuzzy, it's still possible for somebody who's even a complete pagan to get the gist of what's going on in Scripture. It's not that hard. And in those areas where you, you, you may not exactly know what's going on, we have things called study Bibles or commentaries. Now, if you're a layman and you haven't studied the biblical languages and you're not a biblical scholar, commentaries may be a little bit ponderous and above your pay grade. Uh, and so what you need is, you, you know, listen, you don't want to spend a lot of time in a commentary. You just want to understand what's going on in the text. That's where a good study Bible comes into play. Okay, they they are the layman's commentaries, if you were lay level commentaries on biblical texts. They're they're fantastic. Um, my favorite is the Lutheran Study Bible. It you know not not because I'm a Lutheran, but just literally that's the best study Bible I've ever encountered in the English language. So, uh, yeah, but we have these things. But here's the deal: is that nowadays people pay no attention to what these words that are revealed for us in Scripture say and mean in context. No sooner do they read a text out of context that they start spinning all kinds of strange stories about what's going on in these texts, and they don't actually go back to those texts. And as a result of it, they turn the Bible into their book rather than God's book. The Bible becomes a launching point into their agenda, their theology, their ideas, their philosophy, their concepts, their ideology, as opposed to the doctrine that's revealed there in context. This is very, very dangerous because when you read the New Testament, especially in context, we're warned about such people who tamper with and change God's word by twisting it, by addition or subtraction. So what what we do here at Fighting for the Faith on a very regular basis is listen in context to what people are saying about God as they try to you know talk, you know work their way through biblical text to see if that's really what God's word says. And alarmingly and very upsettingly, um we find that so many of the major popular teachers uh, in American evangelicalism and from other countries as well in the in the West um, are not careful exegetes. In, instead, they are tamperers. They engage in word games. They play. They do the trick that your son or daughter does when they say, "Well, your your note wasn't very clear." You know, you got to understand it's tough to and interprets these things i mean we this is postmodern times after all it's it's that kind of, that's what they're doing to the biblical text and as a result of it we're not getting the, a clear proclam- proclamation of the core central message of christianity and that's that 
God in human flesh, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was crucified under Pontius Pilate for our sins and was raised again bodily for our justification and that the world is being called right now by God to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name because we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. And through obfuscation of biblical texts, people are basically trying to create the impression that their ideas, their theologies, and their messages, not the biblical message or biblical theology, is what Christianity is all about. And they're teaching confusion. They're dividing the body of Christ with their false messages. And so what fighting for the faith does is a very politically incorrect thing. It compares what people are saying in the name of God to the word of God in context, according to good biblical hermeneutics and sound biblical scholarship. And oftentimes it finds that what people are saying isn't true. And this is a program that teaches you how to listen to the truth, using, you know, teaching you basic hermeneutics, basic theology, basic Christian doctrine, and good listening skills. And it, it basically to warn you against those who are making merchandise of you, by teaching things that they ought not to teach. And hopefully in the process, if you're attending a church where you're being made merchandise of, where they're teaching false doctrine, where they're not giving you the truth and have concocted their own version of Christianity, that you leave those churches and find a church where the pastor is faithfully proclaiming Christ and him crucified for your sins, Sunday after Sunday, rightly handling the biblical text and not mixing it with error and not out on their own agenda, but are on mission, fulfilling the great commission to make disciples, baptize, and teach all the things that Christ has commanded. That's the idea. Okay, so let's talk about what we're going to do for the next two days. <laughs> I don't have the sermon picked out for tomorrow's episode of Fighting for the Faith, but I, I, I'm looking up my list here and, and the things that I've been researching over the weekend, and we've got a lot of ground to cover. Okay. Um, first of all, we're going to start off with a um, with a uh, response to a, a a couple of emails slash well, it's actually a couple of tweets shot at me over the weekend regarding Passion twenty thirteen. I'm going to basically be answering the question: Does the Gospel of John chapter fourteen? Does the Gospel of John chapter fourteen teach us that God the Holy Spirit is going to speak to us in our hearts and things like that? We're going to look at it in context and answer that question: Is that what is that what Jesus was saying in John chapter fourteen? Then what we're going to do is we're going to launch into part one of hopefully it's only going to be two uh, parts that we're going to do one today and one tomorrow, you know, kind of taking a look at what some other crazy things, bizarre stuff being taught at Passion 2013. Today, I'm going to specifically begin by looking at Louis Giglio's mishandling of Ezekiel chapter 37. And that's the only correct, fair way to to talk about it. It's a complete mishandling of Ezekiel 37. And so we'll take a look at that today. Tomorrow, we're going to look at how he mishandled Luke chapter 4. Yeah, yeah, he mishandled that too. But I also want to get into the mix tomorrow a little bit of uh, taking a look at Gary Haugen of uh, the International... uh, justice mission you know that that guy who you know was there talking about ending sex uh, slavery and stuff like that 
um, there are some problems there. And then I've also got uh, information uh, from the intrepid Ken Silva. Um, he has – oh, man. He's got a – he's got an interesting blog post. Uh, I had no idea, but I kind of knew this was the case, but I didn't really know how deep it was. Um, did you know that Beth Moore really, really, truly, truly, really, truly um, um, is behaving like a prophetess, claiming that she's receiving direct messages from God that she's to give to the church? She's not just Beth Moore. She's the prophetess, Beth Moore. So we'll be talking about that tomorrow. Today, for hour number two, we're going to be going to a Saddleback Church up there in uh, Lake Forest, California. That's uh, Rick Warren's uh, congregation. And listen to the sermon delivered there a couple of weeks ago by none other than Brian Houston of Hillsong. Now, you're going, Brian Houston, Hillsong, that sounds familiar. Yes, Brian Houston is a well-known prosperity preacher. He teaches the word of faith heresy at Hillsong in Sydney, Australia. And he was just preaching at um, Saddleback uh, during the uh, Christmas break between Christmas and New Year, and he uh, did a fine mangling of uh, uh, Corinthians, Second uh, Corinthians chapter seven. The name of the sermon, by the way, is only for a while, and so we're going to take a look at his Bible twisting and false message that he delivered at Saddleback, and ask the question: Why would Rick Warren want a man who teaches the prosperity heresy to be teaching his congregation? Um, because here's the deal. Um, it, it, this is real simple. False teachers teach false doctrine. It's really that simple. And so, I mean, if, for instance, um, if my uh, if the pastor of the congregation that I'm a member of decided that he was going to invite Brian Houston to address us, not that he would come because it's a small congregation, but if he you know the, he invited Brian Houston or maybe Brian McLaren to come deliver the sermon on Sunday. I would be working um, at that point with the elders of the congregation to have um, our pastor um, be disinvited to be our pastor, okay? If he's so obtuse theologically that he can't tell the difference between a wolf and a sheep, uh, between a a man who teaches the biblical gospel and his sound and his theology as opposed to somebody who's a flat-out heretic, if the, he's so theologically and doctrinally obtuse as that, that he is doing things that are contrary to the clear uh, word of God regarding fellowship with heretics, uh, well, then my pastor would be finding a new job. Um, and I think Rick Warren um, is displaying uh, well, problematic <laughs> tendencies at best. And this is one of those things that I am absolutely convinced disqualifies Rick Warren from being a Christian pastor because he's in direct rebellion against the clear teaching and statements that God has given us in his word regarding fellowship with heretics. So anyway, you know, we got a lot of ground to cover. I don't know what we're going to do for sermon review tomorrow, but you know, we're still working that up. But anyway, so we've got a lot of ground to cover on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. I strongly recommend that you make yourself comfortable. And with that, we're going to need to just dive right into the program proper. Here we go. Now, this is normally our email music, but this message came to me via Twitter. By the way, you know, sometimes I answer messages on the air, not only via email, but sometimes via Facebook or Twitter. So keep that in mind. Dun, 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 dun. 
All right, so uh, this particular message comes to us via Russell uh, from Austin, Texas. Russell from Austin, Texas. It was a two-part tweet because you got to understand, if you're going to send a tweet, that whole limit as to how many characters you can use makes it so that long correspondence is just a little bit tricky. So this is you know, one message, two tweets, but uh, here's what uh, Russell wrote. He says, given your knowledge of the scriptures... I believe that there are much better ways that you could be spending your time. Well, wow, wow. So much better ways that I could be spending. He says, unless, of course, you actually believe all the hate that you spew is the truth. John 14, verse 16 seems clear. Why is hearing from the Holy Spirit absurd? Now, this is in the context of the statements that I made regarding Louis Giglio uh, in the first session that we covered here at Fighting for the Faith, where Louis Giglio is claiming direct revelation from God. Well, according to Russell from Austin, Texas, that well, John 14, 16 is clear. And as a result of it, we should, you know, Christians should be expecting to be receiving direct revelation from God. So that's going to, and we're going to use this next segment here to answer the question, does John chapter 14 teach that we as Christians should expect to hear directly from God, the Holy Spirit? Now the verse in question, let me read just the verse itself in question. Cause uh, you know, again, you know, to be fair to uh, Russell here, he's, he's, he quoted at me, John 14, 16, Let's take a look at verse 16. See what it says. Here's what it says. Uh, Jesus is speaking. He says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. That's it. That's all that, well, John chapter 14, verse 16 says, is that Jesus is going to ask the Father and send another helper. That would be the paraclete, uh, God the Holy Spirit. So, does John 14 at all teach that we should expect as Christians to be hearing directly from God, the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm surprised he didn't quote a different verse, but well, let's take a look at this in context. By the way, to know what the Bible means, okay, there are three primary rules for sound biblical exegesis. They are context, context, and context. When, when you read any message or communication, you look at the context. For instance, I mean, if if I were to give you a copy of Tolkien's uh, The Fellowship of the Ring, okay, the the first story, the first book in the uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and I were to have you start at page four hundred and sixteen and only read to page four hundred and eighteen, would you be able to accurately tell me? what the Fellowship of the Ring was all about if you had never been exposed to the story in other places? Answer, like, no, not at all. I mean, why would you parachute into, you know, the the book, you know, more than a third of the way through it and expect to be able to understand what's going on? You don't. You begin at the beginning and you go to the end. That's the idea. So context is one of those things we all get when we're dealing with every other kind of document. That being the case, the same ideas apply in Scripture. It's just... It's actually kind of common sense, but unfortunately, when it comes to the Bible, there's a lot of people not applying just basic understanding of how you do reading comprehension. So, 
What we're going to do here is we're going to look at John chapter 14, and we're going to start at verse 15, and I'm going to keep reading for a little bit, okay? Because Jesus is making a point here, and if you if if you have a copy of the English Standard Version, which is the uh, the translation I'll be reading from, you'll notice that this section has a header entitled "Jesus Promises the Holy Spirit." Important to note this: those little section headers are not inspired. Just want to say they're not part of the original text. That being the case, though, let me read. Here's what Jesus says. He says, "If you love me, you will keep my commandments." Now I'm going to point this out along the way here as we read this passage. Jesus is specifically and chronically referring to the written word of God. If you love me, you will keep. Now, just so you understand what the word keep there means, that's from the Greek verb tereo. And that literally means to guard. It's it's a kind of a military phrase. So if you love me, you will guard my commandments. Where do we find Jesus' commandments? The written word of God. Here's what he says. So, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, again, the Greek verb there, tereo, guards them, he it is who loves me. Okay, so notice here, two times, verse uh, 15 and now verse 21 Jesus is reemphasizing this concept whoever has my command where do we, where do we find the commandments of Christ answer the written word of God we continue so whoever has my commandments and keeps them he it is who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him Judas not Iscariot said to him Lord how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world Jesus said to them if anyone loves me he will keep there's that verb again tereo guard keep guard my word Notice the emphasis. This is the third time now in the short little discourse where Jesus constantly is making reference to the written word of God. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my word. Okay, notice again here. Okay, fourth reference now, now thrown into the negative. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, this is the, the I think this is really the verse that Russell was referring to. I think he had a typo. I think he put uh, John 14, verse 16 by accident. I think he really meant verse 26. So I, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt here. That being the case, listen, listen carefully to this text. But the Helper, that's the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance all that I have said to you. 
The fact that Jesus here is speaking in context to the disciples makes it very clear that this little this little um, promise, especially the verb that is used, absolutely means that he's. This is a specific promise to them that has a fulfillment in history. I'll, 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 let me read it again. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Okay? Remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, let me read to you what the uh, Lutheran Study Bible says. It has a note here for verse 26. And this is what it says. It says, uh, remembrance, all that I have said to you. Promise, this is a promise that the Holy Spirit will help the disciples to discern more fully the words they could not understand before Christ's death. Okay, So this is a specific promise to them that Christ would help them recall and remember the things that Jesus said before his death. Right? And I would then throw in Lenski here. Lenski, uh, he's a uh, New Testament scholar. Here's what he says. He says, we'll remind you of everything that I myself said to you. This is his translation of the Greek here. He says, the fulfillment is exhibited in the marvelous record of the four Gospels, most notably in that of the Gospel of John, which contains the extended discourses of Jesus. It is humanly impossible to reproduce with fidelity even human words spoken during a period of over three years when all the words are understood perfectly at the moment they are heard. It is vastly more impossible to reproduce with exactness the many words of Jesus which the disciples failed to grasp at the time that they heard them. The promise of Jesus assures the eleven on this vital point. By means of an immediate illumination of the Holy Spirit, they will, it will, he will enable them to recall every utterance of Jesus in its true meaning. He will remind the disciples, and in addition, he will teach them what is contained in all of which they are thus reminded. So here is the answer to all the questioning in regard to the four Gospels. The answer covers also the form of of these Gospels, the verbal variations in reporting the words of Jesus and the translation that Jesus said from the Aramaic into the Greek. So here's the idea. Verse 26 is not a promise that God the Holy Spirit is going to speak into our hearts. The clue there and the proof that that's the case is that Jesus is saying to them that he's going to send the Spirit and the Spirit is going to bring to their remembrance all the things that they that Jesus had said to them. Okay, You and I were not present for Jesus' earthly ministry and all the things that he taught when he was here on earth. No, we weren't there. So we not being eyewitnesses to the things that Jesus taught, have no way of remembering experientially what it is that he said and taught. So this is a promise by Jesus to send the Holy Spirit and give the disciples, you know, kind of use a contextualized concept here, to give them the gift of, of total recall so that they can remember the things that he said and taught to them. So, John, the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 26, is not a promise to Christians that God the Holy Spirit is going to speak into your heart. Nothing of the sort. It's a specific promise to the disciples that they would have a special gift from the Holy Spirit to remember, total recall, all that Jesus had said and taught them. 
That's what's going on in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse verse 26. It's not a promise that we should expect that God the Holy Spirit is going to speak into our hearts. No, we have the written words, and over and over again in that same passage, Jesus is telling us that those who love him will guard his word. Where can you go to find the word of Jesus? Answer, only in your Bible. And that's where Jesus wants you to go, to the words that the apostles wrote for us, all that Jesus said and taught them. He even made sure that they would remember it accurately and correctly because the Holy Spirit would miraculously recall to their mind, their remembrance, everything that Jesus said and taught them. That's what this passage is about. John fourteen sixteen and John fourteen twenty six are not any kind of a promise or a statement that we should expect direct revelation in our heart from the Holy Spirit. That's not what this passage teaches at all. All right, we are up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Actually, click on the subscribe button or follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. When we get back, we're going to begin kind of a two day um, look at some of the teachings by Louis Giglio in session eight. From the Passion 2013 Conference, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. Hey, do you want to feel holier than thou? Try Bible Thirst. Holy drinks for people who need gratuitous amounts of piety. With all new flavors like prosperity, instant abundance. It's like adding your bank account to an electrical storm. Sound the alarm. You're going to be uncomfortably holy. What's that? You want mana? Well, how about super mana? Made with lightning. Real lightning. Preaching. Ah. You'll be good at it. It's a holy drink for men. Clergy. These aren't your pastor's puns. They are righteous puns. Piety puns. Sinner, saint, sinner, saint. Prayers, lights, cross lights, power lights, more lights than your body has room for. You'll be so holy, Mother Teresa will be like, slow down. And be like, no. And roundhouse kick her in the face with your Bible pants. You know, so much holiness, holiness. Ah. Just praying all the time. Power praying, power preaching, power praising, power fasting, power meditating, power laughing, power spawning, Chester. You know, so much Chester. Just like Esau. Give prosperity to babies, they'll be holy too. Make your babies run abnormally fast. They'll be as fast as Elijah. People watch them running and think they're Elijah. They'll race as fast as Elijah. In a race with the actual Elijah. And it'll be a time they get deported back to Israel. Hey, go with the for sure thing. Don't gabble on your afterlife. Jesus. Try Bible thirst. The energy that will make you uh, holy.
You can register now for the 10th annual Branson Worldview Weekend in beautiful Branson, Missouri, Friday night, April 26th, Saturday, April 27th, and Sunday morning, April 28th, 2013. Full details are at worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. That's worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. Speakers this year will include Ken Ham of Answers in Genesis. We'll also have speaking with us for the first time his son-in-law, Bodie Hodge, along with Pastor Jesse Johnson, a regular guest here on Worldview Weekend Radio. We'll also be joined by Chris Pinto with a brand new presentation. Mike Gendron will also bring a new presentation, as will Dr. Jimmy DeYoung. We'll also be joined this year for the first time at a Branson Worldview Weekend by Jason Carlson and Jared Carlson. We'll also be joined for the first time in a conference setting by Carl Tykrib. Full details at worldviewweekend.com. We have a family rate and group rate. You can go ahead and purchase your tickets now and receive priority upfront seating when you purchase your tickets now at worldviewweekend.com forward slash Branson. And join us April 26, 27, and 28 in Branson, Missouri. The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. We have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. Warning, the Bible is not a wax nose. It doesn't have all kinds of different ways it can be interpreted correctly. It has actually one correct interpretation. In fact, it's not even interpretation. All right, just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith, this is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts to keep doing what we're doing. Are you a member of our crew yet? If not, and you're a regular listener... Um, may I strongly urge you to join our crew. It's not a lot of money for you, but it means a lot for us the more people that join because what it does is it takes the huge peaks and valleys out of our monthly giving and makes it better for us to be able to budget what we're doing. So if you're not a member of our crew... Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and when you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. Click on the join our crew button. It's only $6.95 a month. That's it. 
We're talking two cups of coffee at Starbucks in a 30-day period. That's it. It's not a lot of money to support us, but it's a great way to support us. And there's little perks along the way. And that means you know, throughout the year, as we make these little perks available, we send them to you at no additional cost. It's our way of saying thank you for being a member of our crew. We're currently working through a, uh, a little apologetic work by uh, the Church Father Irenaeus. It's fantastic. It's not in Philip, Sh- in Philip Schaff's Anti-Nicene Fathers. So you probably don't have this. And if you're, you're, you're interested in understanding what the ancient church, if somebody said, give us a synopsis of what Christianity teaches, this is that. If you like a good little apologetic work against those who are adding things to the, the what the Christian faith teaches, this is a great way of looking back at a, at a church father who was taught by Polycarp, who was taught by the Apostle John. So, I mean, not very far separated from the apostles themselves. So this is a second, third generation Christian uh, who was brought up in the faith uh, by somebody who was taught by the Apostle John. Good stuff. So, uh, again, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. If you would like to make a, a, a you know, specify the contribution that you would like to you know, give us, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We truly, and I mean this, we can't do what we're doing without your support. So those of you who are supporting us, we are indebted to you as well as the other listeners. Thank you. All right, let's, we we don't have any update music for these uh, Passion 2013 conferences um, but let let me let me urge you open up your Bible, open up your Bible to the uh, Book of Ezekiel, chapter thirty seven. Now I'm going to give a little bit of a um, little bit of historical background here as we look at this chapter, and there's something in particular I want you to note. What is this passage about? Now you've all heard that song. You know, we, is it a Sunday school song? The right bones connect to the uh, you know hip bone, and the hip bone connect to the bone. You know, and whatever. You get what I'm saying? Oh, hear the word of the Lord. You know that one. You know the bone song, right? We are, we're all familiar with that. It's you know it's it's a cute little song. Okay, well it comes from this passage. We've all heard of you know Ezekiel in the Valley of the Dry Bones. But the question is, what is this text about? Okay, is it about you? Is it about me? In some sense, it may be about us, but in what sense? Is it about us becoming a global army for good to change the world? You probably not. But the question is, in context, historically, what is this text all about? Okay, now what I'm going to read to you is just a simple introduction to the book of Ezekiel that comes from the standard ESV text. Okay, this isn't even from a study Bible, okay? Listen to what the book of Ezekiel is about. Ezekiel, a prophet and a priest, was exiled to Babylon in the year 597 B.C. His ministry extended over at least 23 years. The book opens with his first dramatic vision of the likeness of the Lord himself, Ezekiel was keenly aware of God's presence and power in human affairs. He addressed both the exiles and the people left in Judah with messages of warning 
and judgment predicting the fall of Jerusalem after Jerusalem's fall in 586 BC. Ezekiel prophesied hope and reassurance for the people of Judah, who had then lost the focus of God's covenant, the temple, in Jerusalem. His vision of the Valley of Dry Bones, chapter 37, is a classic picture of God's ability to renew his people. Okay, now this should tell you something here, okay? What is chapter 37 about? Well, just we, we now know Ezekiel's story, okay? He was a Levite, he's a priest, and he was called as a prophet of God, okay? And he himself was taken captive to Babylon. So he's a contemporary with Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, um, he's a contemporary with Queen Esther. So, I mean, y- y- that that kind of puts him historically there. Now, understand what, what's going on. Israel, Judah, flat out rebelled against God. And got to tell you, Ezekiel is a tough book to work through. There are some sections of Ezekiel that are, well, the language, to put it bluntly, is, well, rated NC-17. In fact, this is kind of an interesting thing. Uh, the church father, Jerome, tells us that Ezekiel was a book that the rabbis of you know ancient Israel wouldn't allow somebody to study unless they were over the age of 30, okay? In other words, this is not a book for somebody who's in, you know, a, of junior high age and still thinks that flatulent jokes are funny, okay? You get what I'm saying? Okay, this this is a a very serious book, and it uses extremely strong and offensive language to describe Judah's idolatry, and it refers to it and references it and shows it as spiritual adultery, spiritual prostitution, and the language is graphic and unmistakable sobering and absolutely frightening, okay? So in the book of Ezekiel, we have these very strong judgments of God, from God, of rebel Israel, rebel Judah, who was engaged in the worst egregious idolatrous sins and rebellion against God, and God slaughtered, what, 90% of the inhabitants of Judah? at the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Only a remnant survived. And the worst part, for them, think about this historically, not only did they lose their sovereignty as a nation, their glory as a, as a nation, they were, by the way, they prided themselves as you know the people of God, right? They lost the temple. The temple was destroyed. During their exile, there was no way for them to sacrifice the sacrifices commanded in the book of Moses, in the Torah, for the forgiveness of their sins. This is a serious deal indeed, okay? So in Ezekiel, you have, there's kind of three primary sections. The first section really deals with these oracles of judgment against Israel. Section number two had these oracles of judgments against other nations. And then section three, which starts about chapter 33 and continues to chapter 48, are um, are prophecies regarding the restoration of the people 
of Israel. Okay, and chapter thirty-seven itself is about God promising, using a graphic parable, if you would, a vision of the resurrection of dry bones. This is referring to the people, God renewing and resurrecting his people. Now, in some senses, you can make application to us because the full fulfillment of this prophecy, so to speak, does include those who are grafted into Israel like you and like me. That being the case, we need to read the passage in context and understand what it's addressing. It's not just some you know random act of resurrection that God here is having uh, Ezekiel witness. This is about, well, the, the text itself will tell you what it's about. Let me read it to you. Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. By the way, this is symbolic of the nation of Israel that had been carried into exile. They're dead, right? He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and to put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord." So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound. And behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord, the God, uh, the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Okay. Notice this, Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 11, tells you. This, let me give you an, an, an example of what this is like. Okay? The Gospels tell us that Jesus taught in many parables. Okay? And what happened is, is that you know, the disciples, after Jesus began teaching in parables, said, Could you teach us the meaning of a parable? For instance, in one of the Gospels, Jesus teaches the parable of the sower, right? There was a sower who went out to sow seed. And as he was sowing, some fell along the path. Others fell into rocky soil. Some fell into thorny soil. And still others fell into good soil, right? So Jesus tells this parable, and everybody is going, what? We don't get it. 
Okay, the disciples didn't get it. So they privately came to Jesus and said, can you explain to us the meaning of the parable of the sower? So Jesus explains it to them. Okay, this is similar to that. So here we have this very difficult to understand prophecy, this vision of the valley of dry bones. And, you know, if, we, if we've ended at verse 10, we'd all be scratching our heads going, okay, that was weird. That was strange. What does it mean? Okay. Verse 11, the Lord himself tells us what this means. This is where he starts. Here's what he says. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. This is a prophecy given to the exiles in Babylon, right? Therefore, prophesy and say to them, to the the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it, declares the Lord. Okay? Is God here literally talking about their resurrection and him bringing you know bringing them resurrected into the land of Israel the answer is yes and no and what i mean by that is this the immediate fulfillment of this prophecy was not that the exiles were raised from the dead but that the house of Israel was raised from the dead and brought out of exile into the land of Israel and was reestablished as a nation okay that's the prophecy. That's the immediate fulfillment. Now, it has some implication because there is some prophetic implication that then is looking forward eschatologically to the last day, a kind of a picture and a hint at Christ's return in glory where the graves are open and everybody is brought back to life, right? There is a sense in which you can then from this text then springboard to the last day. Okay, but it's this text is really a prophecy about God resurrecting the dead nation of Israel that ceased to exist as a nation because they were now in exile. That's what this is about. Okay, if you make it about something else, if you make it about you, well, then you're missing the whole point of the text. So with that as our introduction to this next section, here is Louis Giglio from Session 8 of Passion 2013 talking about Exodus 37. And the thing that you will note almost immediately is he's not teaching what this text is really about, and that is more than problematic. Here we go. We started a few nights ago in Ezekiel 37. And the question was asked, can these bones live? What's the right answer to that question? Oh, sovereign Lord, you alone know. (laughs) But then God moves, and when God moves, then we know what God already knew, 
And what we know today is that these bones can live. And so he said, the Lord who is leading him, prophesy to these bones and say to them, this is what we read, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then, then you will know that I am the Lord. So verse seven, I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. Now you talk about a freak out moment. You're in this huge valley that's just layered and scattered with dry bones. And, and now at the, at the word of the Lord, as Ezekiel is prophesying and speaking out what God has said, all of a sudden there's this clacking noise happening. Not a little clacking noise, but a, a huge clacking noise and a clicking noise as, as bone is actually now running into bone and a skull's coming to a spine and feet, you know, toe bones are joining up with foot bones and the foot bones joining up to the ankle bone and the ankle bones joining up with the leg bones and they're coming from every direction and they're just all joining up. Just a vast vast, vast number of, of corpses, of bones, of skeletons now coming to life. And Ezekiel's like, whoa, he hears this rattling noise. I love that. What a great noise, the noise of bones coming together again. And he said, I looked and tendons covered, tendons appeared on them and skin covered them but there was no breath in them. So all of a sudden Ezekiel standing in a valley full of remade bodies that have no breath. And then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, to the Ruah. This word from the very first sentence of scripture, when it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and his spirit was over the waters. His ruah was over the waters. In the very beginning of creation, the breath of God was over the waters, was over the, the, the plan, was over the unfolding of galaxies and nebula and, and stars beyond our comprehension. And yeah, It's kind of a sloppy handling of Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, um, especially considering the fact that um, the Hebrew here, talking about how the, uh, the spirit, um, the Ve'ruach uh, the, the, the Elohim, was uh, Mera Shafet was um, hovering, fluttering. In fact, the verb uh, Rashef, it means to flutter. It's, kind of, it's a bird verb, if you would. So it says that the Spirit of the Lord was fluttering over the waters. Um, that would probably be a far better way of putting it, but um, he's taking liberties with the text, even this text. We continue. Earth. 
earth and sea and sky and everything that is. Over all of that was the spirit of God, same word, the breath of God. He said, prophesy to the breath, prophesy son of man and say to the breath, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain that they may live. So you can have all your bones in order and have tendons and have skin and look pretty normal and still be completely dead. You can have the appearance of... Okay, this is where it gets weird. Okay, notice. Let me back this up. No sooner does he finish reading a portion from Ezekiel 37 that he immediately is decided to hijack this passage. Now, let me read again. Okay, Ezekiel 37, verse 11, the interpretation of the vision. Then he said to me, son of man, These bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, our hope is lost, we are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves. O my people, I will bring you into the land of Israel. That's the interpretation of this. Okay, so no sooner does he read a portion of this text that he he doesn't he never gets to verse 11 by the way because if he were to get to verse 11 he would not be able to do what he's doing here listen again to him finishing reading it and then immediately hijacking this text come from the four winds o breath and breathe into these slain that they may live That's him finishing reading from the text. Here's the hijack. So you can have all your bones in order and have tendons and have skin and look pretty normal and still be completely dead. You can have the appearance of everything being all put together and still be completely dead. You can be sitting in a church or a campus ministry or Passion 2013 and say, look, everything's kind of together. And and God says, yeah, everything's kind of together, but there is no breath. There, there's no breath in there. It's, it's- Does what is what he's saying making any sense in light of what this passage is about? Answer, not at all. So you can be all put together but not have any breath in you? This is ridiculous. What is he doing to this text? It's that missing life. And for some of us here, you know what I'm talking about. It's like I was here and I thought everything was going okay. And my life was, you know, it wasn't like I was falling apart. But but even though I had bones and tendons and skin, I didn't have the breath. Not the ruah, not the, the spirit of God. And so I prophesied, verse 10, as he commanded me and breath entered into them. They came to life. <laughs> Man, I, I would, I don't know if I wanted to be there for that or not. I mean, I think it's awesome, but it's also kind of creepy and a whole lot scary. When all these bodies start breathing and eyes start opening and you're the, you're in the center of it all. And they're like, 
Who are you? And then people start sitting up, looking around. A valley of people sitting up and looking around. And I think this is the point where Ezekiel's like, I'm glad that he took me by the hand and led me because I'm guaranteeing you he's holding on to that hand right now. And this was the outcome, the very last part of verse 10. They came to life and, that wasn't the end, and stood up on their feet. That's what God's leading us to. They came to life. Are you an exile? From the, the uh, people of Judah in Babylon? What are you talking about? And they stood up on their feet. It's a glorious moment when parents watch a, a child turn over for the first time. <laughs> but typically the child doesn't look around and go, do you see that? I just turned over. It's pretty special. But when children start to crawl, they know something's going on because they get chased and they like that. And so they'll crawl a little ways and what do they do? They look back like, yeah, you see that? I'm crawling, you coming, I'm crawling, you coming, you still coming because I'm still crawling. And so that- Does this have anything to do with what Ezekiel 37 is about? Not at all. Well, that's pretty cool. People are like, she's crawling, he's crawling, and then he's grabbing, and then she's reaching, and then they're pulling, and finally they're standing, and you're getting sort of the play-by-play. But there comes a day when they figure it all out. It's like the tipping point of life, really, in mobility, because, you know, we, 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 we turned, we crawled, we, we reached, we grabbed. But then there was that moment where somehow they, they did it, and they got up, and, and, uh, and then it went back down. And then and they got up, then it went back down, then it went back down, then it went back down. But then there's that moment where they got up and they went. Are y'all seeing this? I'm standing up. I just went from being a baby to being a person because people stand up. Babies crawl, but people stand. And I may be small still, but I'm standing now. And you can see it on their faces. They know this is what I was meant to do. And in our journey with God, God is always bringing us to the place where we stand up in him on our feet in his power and that was the outcome of this valley scattered with bones he said they came to life and then they stood on their feet and then here's how he describes them a vast army bones are now an army death It's now an army. Destruction and defeat and decay is now an army. All these bones now are living. They're breathing. You don't become an army by deciding to get in an army. You you become an army when you get breath and you get life and you get raised up and you stand up. But when you stand up in the economy of God, you never stand up in God's economy for yourself. As soon as you stand up in God's... Again, this is bizarre. 
This is like somebody taking the parable of the sower and the seeds and ignoring Jesus' interpretation of that parable and completely wholesale or whole cloth making up their own interpretation. This parable, this vision, is interpreted for us by none other than Yahweh himself, starting at verse 11. I just read it twice. Is what he's saying have anything to do with what this text is about? He's making these assertions from his interpretation of this vision while ignoring the fact that God himself, who, who, by the way, you cannot possibly get a more a higher authority. There's nobody else to appeal to above the Lord. Okay? God told us himself what this is about. But he didn't read the Lord's interpretation of the Lord's own vision. He's inserting his own, he's hijacked this vision to make it about what he wants to make it about. This is a classic tactic of false teachers and Bible twisters. This is not the behavior of somebody who is a careful exegete of God's word. We continue. As economy, you look around and go, wow, I'm standing now by the power of God. I must be now at the disposal of God to be the hands and feet of God in this world. So that when the world asks, like Gary said the other day, where is God? We know they're really asking, where are the people of God? Where is the army of God? So now he's made this passage by referencing Gary Hagen's um, session. This passage is now about God making an army in the world to end slavery, an army to change the world. This passage isn't about an army that God is raising to change the world or anything of the sort. I know there are angel armies on the hilltops, but where is the army of God's people? The people with the Ruah of God in them now, standing up to say we are the people of God. Okay, Louis at this point is finished with his main point from Ezekiel 37 at this point. He'll he'll come back to it a little bit later. In fact, I'm going to fast forward about, um, well, 30 minutes. It's like 27, 28 minutes forward in the message to where he comes back to try to pick up some of the points that he had made earlier in his session. This is session Eight of the last day, and references again the Ezekiel 37 part about being raised from the dead and the Ruach and all that kind of stuff. And he says something very interesting. He says something, he's at this point going to talk about our message as Christians. And there is some crazy stuff that you're about to hear here. So here again is Louis Giglio, and this is him talking about what our message to the world is as Christians. Listen in. Our message, now that everything's changed, it's simple. Let's don't confuse our message, please. I'll save the sermon. 
But can I just say, let's not really confuse the message. The message is, I was dead and I am alive. (laughs) That's the message. Okay, now I want to point something out here, okay? The message that Christians are to preach, the good news, the good news is not that you or I were dead and now we are alive. That's way off. Okay? The Christian message, let me in fact let me quote to you the apostle Paul. And what I'd like you to do is flip over with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let me read. Paul writes at verse 1. He says, "Now I would remind you brothers of the gospel that I preached to you which you received in which you stand." So he's saying, I'm going to remind you of the gospel, the good news that I preached to you. This is the message, the core central message of Christianity. The message I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless of course you believed in vain for I delivered to you as of first importance, what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Okay. Our message to the world is not that we were dead and are now alive, but that Christ was stone cold, clinically gone, dead. He was killed murdered on a Roman cross, had a spear thrust into his side, into his heart sack, and out came blood and water. He was dead. And God raised him again on the third day. Why was he hanging on the cross? Well, his bloody sacrificial death on the cross was for our sins. He was pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement or the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And God raised him from the dead. The Christian message is not you or I are dead or we're dead and now we're alive. That is the result of the message that we are to proclaim. Our resurrection, our regeneration first in this life and physical resurrection in the life to come are the result of the message, the core message, that Christ was crucified, dead, and buried, and raised again on the third day for our justification. This is 180 degrees backwards. I'm going to back it up again. Listen again to what he's saying, our message. And this is to a crowd of over 60,000 young people, you know, 18 to 25, college-age kids. And he's telling them that our message is about us? No, our message as Christians is about Christ. Listen again. Our message, now that everything's changed, it's simple. Let's don't confuse our message, please. I'll save the sermon. But can I just say, let's not really confuse the message. The message is... I was dead, and I am alive. (laughs) That's the message. You don't have to clap for that. Again, couldn't be more wrong. 
You don't, you don't have to clap for the rest of these for a while. Our message isn't, well, you know, Jesus is superior to your God. <clears throat> Our message is, I don't know, tell me all about your God. I got time. I'll, I'll sit down and have a cup of coffee. Tell me all. That's actually part of our message. Our God is alive and real. He is the one who exists. All other gods are false gods. They don't even exist. They can't hear you. Weird statement. We'll kind of unpack a little bit more of this tomorrow. Tell me all about it. That's awesome. So great. Can I tell you now about my God? I was dead, and now I am alive forevermore. I love Jesus. Did you hear what he said? Let me tell you about my God. I was dead, and now I'm alive. So does that mean that you are your own God? Listen again. Awesome. So great. Can I tell you now about my God? I was dead, and now I am alive forevermore. I love Jesus. Well, yeah, but what about the whatever, whatever, whatever? Yeah, I know, but I, I was dead, man, and I'm alive. Look at me. I'm alive. I'm not talking about just like alive, alive. I'm talking about alive, alive. I was like bones, and then tendons came on when the bones came. Yeah, no, you, okay, notice what he's doing here. Somehow we're supposed to look at his life transformation. He was dead, and now he's alive. Who's he pointing to for evidence that Christianity is true? Some subjective thing within himself. But what we're called to proclaim is not some subjective change in our quality of life. We're called to proclaim the objective change that Jesus went through from being a corpse to being alive, for real alive. And okay, and notice the allusion back to Ezekiel 37. This is he's this the Ezekiel 37 part that we just covered was kind of the setup for one of these points that he's now making later in the session. Let me back it up again. And I'm alive. Look at me. I'm alive. I'm not talking about just like alive, alive. I'm talking about alive, alive. I was like bones and then tendons came on when the bones came together and muscles came on and skin wrapped around. Then I was a body, but then God went and I came to life and look at me. I'm standing up. Can you believe it? I'm standing up. I mean, you've seen me crawl. Look what he's doing with this text. He's completely hijacked Ezekiel 37. And now he's making this like the center message of Christianity. And it's not. You've seen me reach. You've seen me fall. You've seen me tumble. You saw me where I could barely turn over. You've seen me where I looked lifeless like that little boy. But look at me. I'm standing up. Come on. I was dead. And now I am alive forevermore. That's our message to the world. No, it's not. Our message to the, our message to the world is Christ, the Son of God, God incarnate, was crucified for our sins, died, and was raised again bodily on the third day. That's our message. Repent, therefore, and believe the good news. Repent of your sin and your wickedness and be forgiven by the shed blood of Christ. That's our message. This is not our message. This is a counterfeit. This is a false message. This is a false gospel with a completely man-centered emphasis and center rather than the center being on Christ. And like Paul said, I taught you what's of first importance, or as he says earlier in that same epistle, chapter 2, I chose to know nothing among you except for Christ and him crucified. Yeah, this is very dangerous stuff that Louis Giglio is doing here. He's literally changing the message of Christianity from being about Christ to being about you. 
That's our message before our message is, you are dead and you need to be alive. Our message is, I was dead and look at me, I'm alive. Because when our message is, I was dead and I'm alive, people go, how do you get alive? I'm looking at you alive. I know you. You are alive. How did you get alive? Jesus gave me life and breath. How do you get Jesus and what is that all about? And we spend our whole life telling everybody, you people are dead and you need people need to be alive. You're dead and you need to be alive. We're praying for all of y'all and we're not coming out like to tell you anything. We're just going to huddle up and pray for you because we know you're dead and you need life. That is not the message to the world. You're dead and you need life. God's already said that to the world. The message to the world is I was dead and now I am alive and I know life. I know his name. I know who he is. He's inside of me right now. So you just check that out. And if it interests you or piques your attention in any way, you just keep asking and you keep looking and you keep watching. And if they do that, they keep watching, they're going to see that you're a flat out sinner, just like all the rest of us. No, you are not the gospel. The gospel is what Christ did. He is the gospel. This, like I said, is 100 and 80 degrees backwards, and it's wrong. Not, I used to go to church, and I just started going back to church. Oh, fantastic. I'm, I'm, as a pastor, I couldn't be more happy about that. But that ain't going to work in your classroom. Well, I used to, you know, smoke like four packs of cigarettes a day, and now I'm down to, you know, just one or two, and... Our message is that Jesus was dead and rose again on the third day. It's not about you. It's about what Christ has done for you. I think I'm getting better. Oh, right on, man. That's great. But if people see and hear in us, I was dead, a corpse. Yeah, I had bones. Yeah, I had muscles. Yes, I had skin. Yes, I had hair. Yes, I had... All of this allegorical or metaphorical bones and skin and death and all that kind of stuff. Eyes. Yes, I had eyeballs and elbows, but, but I was dead. And look at me. I'm alive. What does the word alive mean in that sentence? Our identity, Judah said, is that we were not and now we are. Check it out later. First Peter 2. We were not a people, and now we are the people of God. That's our identity. So we're the message. We're not looking for any more identity than that. Thank you very much. Oh, but I'm a member of such and such and such and such. Oh, but I hang out with so and so and so and so. Big, fat deal. Everything's already changed, people, and our identity is we were not, and now we are. We had not received mercy, and now we have received mercy. We weren't a people, and now we're not just a people. We are the people of God. Thank you very much. So we wake up in the morning and go, hello, everything's changed. I have a new identity. I was not, but now I am. Our witness to the world are our wounds that are being healed by Jesus. Okay, notice again, first thing he did was he's hijacked the central message of Christianity. The central message of Christianity is Christ and him crucified for our sins, raised again from the grave for our justification. Now, watch what he does here. He's going to talk about our wounds as if somehow they're the thing that people should be looking to, our healed wounds, 
as the proof of Christianity. Listen to this. I mean, again, we're taking all of the focus off of Christ and have put it squarely on ourselves. We've hijacked the message of Christianity, and rather than it being what Christ has done, well, we're the miracle, not Jesus. Even when Jesus came to his disciples after his resurrection, there were scars in his wrists and scars in his feet. So this, so- this is the setup, because he's not actually teaching about Jesus. Okay, He's going to allegorize Jesus' wounds and basically talk about how we need to point people to ours. Watch this. So that one of his followers said, I need to poke my holes in the scars. Jesus didn't come back and say, hey, God, Father, when I'm raised from the dead, can you fix the scars? Because that's going to be embarrassing to walk around when I come back for a little while resurrected on earth with these big scars on me. I don't want people to see the scars. So I'm either going to do wristbands or, uh, you know, large, you know, some kind of wrap bracelet that probably looked good in Jesus' day. Or I'm going to wear socks or something with my sandals, you know, like some of the kids used to, you know, and I'm going to, I'm going to. I'm going to kind of cover up all this stuff. No, he came right in. And when they said, hey, we want to see the scars, he went, oh, there they are. You want to see them? There they are right there. The resurrected son of God right now has the scars on his body. Uh Uh-huh. Now watch what he does. And they're the scars of healed wounds. And they're the testimony of the power of God. So don't. So Jesus' healed wounds are the testimony of the power of God. Now he's going to make this about us. Listen again. And they're the testimony of the power of God. So don't try to hide your scars because our scars are our story. That's how we witness to the world. We say, I don't mind you seeing my scars because I had wounds in my life, but God has healed the wounds. Look at me. I'm standing up. So apparently that whole section from the Gospel of John chapter 20 where... Thomas says he's not going to believe that Jesus has bodily raised from the grave until he puts his hand or fingers in the wounds. That's Jesus giving us an example now that we need to follow. So don't hide your scars because your scars are the story. No, they're not. Jesus is the story. This is a man-centered message and a man-centered, quote, Gospel. I'm putting that in air quotes because this is no gospel at all. Rather than the biblical gospel that we're called to proclaim, which is not man-centered, it's centered on Christ and what he has done. Notice Jesus here, he's just an example for you to follow. Him pointing you know, to people to his scars, well, you got to do the same thing now. This is ludicrous. Let me back it up again. Listen again. That's how we witness to the world. We say, I don't mind you seeing my scars because I had wounds in my life, but God has healed the wounds. Look at me. I'm standing up. I'm standing up. Wow. All I can say is, wow, this is so bad. I mean, it makes me want to ask the question. Has Louis Giglio been to the Stephen Furtick School of Narcissistic Eisegesis? where you learn how to hijack any Bible story, even the ones about Jesus, and make them about yourself? Because that's what he's doing here. And by doing that, he has utterly and completely, without any biblical warrant or any passages that say so, changed the central message of Christianity from Christ and him crucified and raised again from the grave on the third day, to, well, you were once dead, and well, now look at you, you're alive. And see, that's our message to the world.
No, it isn't. If that's the message that you're telling people that Christianity is all about, you're not telling them the true gospel or the true message. And you are in danger of the curse that is declared on all who teach a different gospel that's declared for us and revealed in Galatians chapter 1, where Paul writes, Even if we or an angel from heaven should come to you preaching a different gospel than the one you received, let him be anathema, cursed, damned. And then he says it again. As I've said before, let me say it again. If anyone comes to you preaching a different gospel, let him be anathema. Louis Giglio needs to repent. This, flat out, is a different, altogether different gospel than the one that we've been given to preach. Completely different gospel, completely different message. Sounds like the good news, but it's not. And it's based upon hijacking biblical texts, ignoring what they're really about, and then pouring into them meaning that isn't even there. And Louis Giglio did this in spades the last session, session eight at Passion 2013. All right, we are up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. Or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Sermon review time. Brian Houston of Hillsong at Saddleback. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices so visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap write down the promo code click on the web banner and book your spring or summer travel today and remember a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support.
come in. What was I just doing, you might ask? Well, I just conquered the outer rim planet of Pico Pond with my trusty double-barreled nuclear plasma cannon. Well, I just did in this video game. But how is it possible for someone like myself to play 13 hours straight and not get a headache? It's quite simple, really. It's because I wear gunners. When I'm rocking these babies, I'm unstoppable. They're not limited to just games, mind you. Oh, no! I rock the spreadsheet, the PowerPoint, the word processor, and when that's all done, I hop my T-16 and fry me some toasters. If you want to get in on the action, then head over to piratechristianradio.com forward slash gunners. You gotta see it to believe it. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. We're well into it. Sermon review time now. I told you this sermon was coming up, so you had fair warning. I told you before I went on Christmas break that Brian Houston was going to be um, preaching at Saddleback. He is one of the main teachers of the prosperity heresy tells you that Rick Warren's theology is off the rails. Let's do this. The good, the bad, the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Saddleback Church. The name of it is entitled Only for a While, delivered by Brian Houston of Hillsong, a noted, well-known, prosperity, word of faith, heretic. Okay? That's what Brian Houston is. We've covered quite a few of his false sermons here at Fighting for the Faith over the years. And it's important to note, he's at Saddleback Church. That's basically Rick Warren thumbing his nose at Jesus and the Holy Spirit and saying, I don't care if your word says that I'm to separate myself from people who teach false doctrine. I'm going to have Brian Houston over here anyway because he's so popular right now. I think that's the right way of looking at it. So uh, he's going to attempt to deliver a sermon from 2 Corinthians chapter 7. So if you want to have your Bible open to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, you'll notice that he starts off safe and conservative, and then as the sermon develops, that's, you know, farther in, that's where some of the crazier statements come from. So let me go ahead and kill the music here. Without any further ado, here's Brian Houston at Saddleback Church in his sermon entitled, Only for a While. Here we go. Well, what an honor to be here at Saddleback at the 11.15 a.m. service, which I hear is the most spiritual service of the entire week, right here, right now. It really is an honor to be here, and we're great fans of your pastors, in fact, uh, Rick Warren has been out to our Hillsong Conference in Australia in the past, where people come from all over the globe, and he's coming again this coming year in July, so we're looking forward to that. I may have written a few books, but none of them have sold five billion copies like his have. 
But then he's 20 days older than me, so there's still lots of time to go. <laughs> I hope you can understand my accent, because in heaven, everybody talks like this. All right? Father, thank you for your promise. Lord, in the lives of your people. Lord, I thank you as we enter into a new year, new beginning. Lord, that through you, it's full of hope. And I just pray in Jesus' name that every person in this room and in the other rooms, Father, and across campuses will know that you are on their side today. And Lord, I just thank you that you have a purpose and a plan for every single life and every single family and every single home that's represented. And we thank you for the honor of being able to live our lives serving King Jesus. In your name, Father, amen. So this message is called Only for a While. If you don't remember anything else I say, just remember that, only for a while. And the text I'm going to use is 2 Corinthians chapter 7. But before we get there, let me ask you, have you ever thought about the difference between circumstances and issues? Proverbs 4.23 says, keep your heart with all diligence. Be diligent about the condition of your heart because out from it spring the issues of life. And you know, within the context of that word issues is the idea of borders or boundaries or parameters. So it's really saying we need to be diligent about the condition of our heart because often the borders or the boundaries or parameters, what sets those Boundaries in our life is determined by our heart. Circumstances are what happen to us. Oftentimes can be beyond our control. But it's not circumstances that determine the outcomes in our life. It's issues. Issues are the things that happen in us. You have issues of the heart. And so many people, they never know the importance and never realize just how critical it is if we really want to move into all that God prepares for us and live by his almighty promise to be diligent about the condition of your heart. When you're young, you start out, it's kind of easy sometimes to have a good, open, idealistic even heart. But life itself, its seasons, its challenges, means that as we go on a little, we have to be just that much more diligent about keeping our heart, out of which come the issues of life. Well, here in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, it's the Apostle Paul obviously writing and he's talking to the Corinthians. He was in Macedonia, which in Bible times was northern Greece, and he's speaking to the Corinthians in southern Greece. And he had a set of circumstances that had him feeling Exhausted. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 5. And this is what he says. He said, For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. We were exhausted. He said, But we had trouble on every side. We were besieged. Outside, there were conflicts, we were opposed. Inside, there were fears, we were scared. 
Maybe coming toward the end of a big year, there are people who can identify with at least one of those things that Paul was feeling. One more time, he says, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. He was exhausted. He talks then about having trouble on every side, which is often the way trouble comes. The devil's the author of confusion. So many times when he attacks, he just doesn't attack you from one side. He attacks you from all sorts of sides, so you don't know which battle you're fighting. Okay, I'm going to have to pause here for a second. And the reason I got to pause is that we need to actually take a look here at what's going on in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Remember our three rules for sound biblical exegesis. They are context, context, and context. The idea here is you got to find out what's going on in the context so you can tell whether or not somebody, somebody is bamboozling you by ripping passages out of context to make them say something that they don't say. So in order to get the context of 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5, we're going to go backwards into 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and I'm going to start at verse 14, and then I'm going to keep reading through the end of chapter 7, just so that we can get a good bird's eye in context, immediate context view of what is going on in this passage. Here we go. Second Corinthians chapter six, verse 14. The apostle Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit says this, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, Go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I'm acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort in all our affliction. I'm overflowing with joy." For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more." For even if I made you grieve with my letter, that would be the letter he wrote, the first Corinthians, even though I made you grieve with my letter, 
I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For we see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame, but what, but just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affliction for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him without fear and trembling. I rejoice, because I have complete confidence in you. Okay, so now you know what the full immediate context is of 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Let me point this out, though, because where Brian Houston is going to go, remember the name of the sermon is only for a while. He's getting that from the last words of verse 8, only for a while. Let's review that portion just a little bit. Here's what he says at verse 8. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Okay, you see the distinction? So here Paul, he had to write a very harsh letter, 1 Corinthians, and it grieved him to do it, but it doesn't. It didn't grieve him. And the reason why he wasn't grieved is because it produced in them godly grief. That is, repentance that leads to salvation. It's a perfect passage to go to regarding law and gospel. Law, you preach the law in all of its sternness, and all of its sternness to basically strip people of all of their self-righteousness and show them that they stand guilty and condemned before God. And then you preach the good news of Christ and him crucified for our sins. And that is the comfort that we have. So the law produced repentance that leads to salvation without regret. So that's the idea here. With this good exegesis and good look then at Second Corinthians chapter 7, we are now prepared for the bamboozling that Brian Houston is about to engage in. We continue. And that's how Paul felt. He felt besieged. Again, inside there were conflicts. Outside, 
Outside there were conflicts, excuse me. Inside there were fears. He was conflicted on the inside, had conflict on the outside, had trouble within and trouble all around. So he was facing some pretty challenging times. But the wonderful thing that I see as I read through this chapter is that Paul never forgot where to go for comfort or where to go for encouragement. He goes straight from talking about his fears and his opposition and trouble on every side and being run down and exhausted to going to the God of comfort. He says next verse, verse six and verse seven, he said, nevertheless, God. Listen to how many times these verses use the word comfort. means encouragement. So important in life that we never forget where to turn for encouragement, where to go for comfort. And here in these verses, if I read verse six and I read verse seven, it says, nevertheless, God who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus and not only by his coming, but also by the consolation or comfort or encouragement with which he was comforted in you when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me so that I rejoiced even more. He's talking to the Corinthians. So Paul, in the middle of his challenges, he knows directly where to go. He says, nevertheless, God who comforts the downcast or the downhearted. If we live our life downcast or downhearted, we're only going one way and that's down. So the apostle Paul, he knew first to go to God for comfort. I mean, we can go to all sorts of places looking for comfort. Sometimes we can listen to all the wrong voices. Sometimes we can. Okay, let me, let me point something out here. It's as if he's purposely missing the forest so that he can point out the fungus on a tree. Okay, the emphasis is totally on the wrong syllable here. I mean, this passage, I mean, there's just this fleeting little comment about how when he came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. We were afflicted at every turn, fighting without fear, fighting without and fear within. But God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the comforting of Titus. Okay. And, and so it's, that's not even his main point here. Weird. Okay. We continue. Listen to all the wrong voices. Sometimes we can turn to all the wrong things. When circumstances are squeezing in on us, no matter how seasoned you are as a believer, no matter how mature you are as a Christian, no matter how well you know the Word of God, you can still forget the power of going first to God in every situation and bringing God into every circumstance and realize that the greatest place of encouragement and the greatest place of comfort is in the Word of God and out of the heart of God. Facing 2013, I would encourage every person I could to just always keep God in first place in our life. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, where it begins, in the beginning, God. Hebrews chapter 1 begins, God, who at various times and in various ways has spoken to us, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son or through His Son, Jesus Christ. First, Paul went to God. And then second, and I love this thought, he says, nevertheless, God, again, verse six, who comforts 
the downhearted, comforted us. God comforted us by the coming of Titus. So it wasn't just his partner in the faith, Titus, coming that encouraged Paul. No, he thanks God for the coming of Titus. In other words, God put Titus in the Apostle Paul's world. I wonder if you think about the people that God has put in your world. Not just good friends, God friends. I wonder if you really think about the people that God puts around us. I'm certain of it. I'm certain of it that those of us who are part of a a great church, a local church like this one here, rather than just being convenience and just being a church that we love because it's safe and because Pastor Rick's such a good Bible teacher, people who are here because they know God put... Really, Pastor Rick is such a great Bible teacher? Yeah, just read the first two chapters of the book, The Purpose Driven Life, And every time he references scripture, look back in the end notes because it's not there. He doesn't give you the references and see and put those verses back in context and then tell me he's a good Bible teacher. He is the supreme apex grand poobah of Bible twisting. We continue. People who are here because they know God put them here and they know that God has put a pastor in your world, or God has put friends in your world. They're always friends to your God-given destiny. They're the people that God puts in your... Friends to your God-given destiny. What is that? Your world, they're always friends to your God-given destiny. They're the people that God puts in your world. I can thank God as I look, whether it's at people who I've looked up to in life or whether it's people who I would see as peers or whether it's people who are part of our team and people who have done the journey with us for up to 30 years. But I do know there are people who God has put in our world. And sometimes when you face challenge and you face opposition, it's easy to draw back and you forget the people God put in your world. Nevertheless, God who comforts the downhearted comforted us. God comforted us by the coming of Titus. You want to live your life knowing how to encourage yourself in the Lord, then always remember we go to God for comfort. There's people that God put in our world who are friends to our God-given purpose and destiny. And we know to keep those people close rather than draw back and withdraw and hold people out. But then third, And Paul says, nevertheless, God who comforts the downhearted comforted us by the coming of Titus and not only by his coming, but also with the encouragement, consolation, comfort with which he, Titus, was comforted by you, the Corinthian church. So Paul, even though he's facing all these challenges, he goes into these verses saying he was filled with comfort. People who are using godly wisdom They live their life in a way where they know where to go for encouragement and for comfort. Paul went to God. He thanked God. They live their life in such a way as they knew where to go for encouragement and comfort? Huh? 
that's not what this text is about, nor is it really what it says. Okay. All right. Let me back it up just a little bit and we'll keep plowing through this. Here we go. They live their life in a way where they know where to go for encouragement and for comfort. Paul went to God. He thanked God for his partner in the faith, Titus, who God had put in his world. And he thanked God for the Corinthian church. And the Corinthian church was anything but the perfect church. I mean, the Corinthian church, they, they were crazy. The apostle Paul spent most of his time when writing to the Corinthians trying to sort them out and bring some order and some discipline. And yet he knew the power of being encouraged by the church. You know, those are very simple things. But it's amazing how when we face circumstances, we fail to look after our heart because we go to all the wrong places for comfort. I mean, Job's so-called comforters, all of the encouragement that they gave Job was directly opposite to what God intended for Job. And we can have all sorts of people around us and people talking into our world and listen to all sorts of voices. But knowing where to go for comfort, such a powerful thing in life. Knowing where to go for comfort Weird. We continue. Well, the Apostle Paul, he, you know, he had these challenging circumstances. He was feeling opposed and he was feeling besieged and he was feeling scared. Inside there were fears and uh, he was exhausted. But he's talking to the Corinthians and the Corinthians, they had some real issues. I mean, their issues primarily were caused by the Apostle Paul. Okay, now this is important. I want you to hear this again. Their issues were caused by the Apostle Paul. This isn't what this text says. Listen carefully. I mean, their issues primarily were caused by the Apostle Paul. Because Paul had written them, a strong, strongly worded email. <laughs> so their problems were caused by the Apostle Paul because Paul wrote them a strongly worded email? No. Their problems were that they were not listening to Paul. They were, they had run amok. You had a guy sleeping with his father's wife. They were getting drunk during communion. Uh, there was all kinds of other fornal caboodling going on at the, at the church in Corinth. Those problems were not caused by the Apostle Paul's harshly written letter to the Corinthians. Listen again, because this is where things get very wrong. Okay? No. Nowhere, and there's no biblical scholar that's going to say, oh, there's all these problems that were caused at the church in Corinth by Paul's harshly written letter. Listen again. I mean, their issues primarily were caused by the Apostle Paul. Because Paul had written them a strong, strongly worded email. 
It was an epistle, but if it was now, it would be an email. But you know, emails, they often, they don't smile. You can't sort of often see the spirit behind it. So Paul had written a stinging letter to the Corinthians because while they had been getting persuaded by other teachers and some were being persuaded away from the apostles and so on. So Paul has written them a strong... Yeah, you don't really know what was going wrong at Corinth, do you? Strong letter. And he talks about that letter next in verse 7. So this is what the Apostle Paul says. Verse 8, excuse me. He said, For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry. But listen to it. Here's the power of it. Though only for a while. Okay, so in Brian Houston's misreading of this text, here's the setup. The Apostle Paul caused problems to the people in Corinth by his harshly written letter or email, right? And so, but the Corinthian church had the wisdom to not let it really get to them because it only made them grieve only for a while. So the power is in you needing to take this idea of only for a while and applying it to your life. Don't believe me? Listen in. There are people in life who never learn the power of only for a while. You know, sometimes life we... Now, let me read this again in context. I want to point something out. Is the power in the only for a while? Let's read this again from the ESV. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss, uh, uh, no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. That's the context again, okay, of this whole discourse regarding grief. And he was happy, he rejoiced because his harshly written letter produced in them repentance, godly grief that led to repentance that leads to salvation. That's what this text says. That's not what Brian Houston is going to do with this, though. Back it up. We continue. You know, sometimes life, we face all sorts of circumstances and, and trying to keep our heart and be diligent about the condition of our heart. We can get some issues into our heart and you can feel like, Somebody let you down. Somebody hurt you. Maybe you have this sense of disappointment because you feel like God didn't answer a prayer. Maybe you feel misunderstood. And that's not exactly wrong. I mean, you're not made of wood. God created us with feelings. And sometimes we feel hurt or we feel disappointed or we feel misunderstood. And the further we go in life, the more likely that is to happen. But what Paul was encouraging the Corinthians for was he said, I know my letter upset you, 
I don't regret writing it. I did regret it, but I don't because even though my letter upset you, it was only for a while. Listen to it. No. It produced in them godly grief that led to repentance and that repentance leads to salvation. He's missing, I would say intentionally missing, the point of this letter. Listen again. I don't regret writing it. I did regret it, but I don't because even though my letter upset you, it was only for a while. Listen to it in the message. Eugene Peterson in the message. Okay, now this is where he... See, listen, folks. I'm sorry. I've watched this thing twice. This is intentional. This is absolutely intentionally deceitful. He starts off in the New King James Version, and then right here he switches to the message. And the reason why he switches to the message is so that he doesn't have to read... For godly grief produces repentance. For you felt a... where He literally wants to avoid what this text says in a good translation. So at this point, this is like a magic trick, okay? He's now going to, oh, just let me switch to the message, okay? Okay, but he's doing that so that he can continue to make his point that they discovered the power of only for a while rather than make the point about how Godly grief produces repentance. Listen again. Here's the switch. For a while. Listen to it in the message. Eugene Peterson in the message, he puts it this way. He says, I know I distressed you greatly with my letter. Although I felt awful. Everybody say awful. Not awful. (laughs) Awful. That's it. At the time, I don't feel at all bad now that I see how it turned out. The letter upset you, but only for a while. I believe in this room and perhaps watching online or wherever else people are, there are those here who need to make choices when it comes to some of the things that become... Notice he is avoiding like the plague the language about how the letter produced in them godly grief that led to repentance and how godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation whereas worldly grief produces death. He's now officially switched to the message which is not even a paraphrase. It's not a translation. It should be avoided like the plague. Okay? You need to think of it as, you know, a dirty dish sponge filled with all kinds of really nasty bacteria who that'll probably eat you alive. That's what you need to think of regarding the message. We continue. Issues in our heart. Yes, I feel this way, but it's only for a while. You see, often people stop at a disappointment or they stop at a hurt or they stop somewhere along the way. And by stopping there, the issues of their heart are setting boundaries in their life that God never intended to be set. What is it that you need to decide this is only for a while? 
I mean, life can bring some pretty challenging circumstances. Seriously, this is so deceitful. I, I, I don't even have words for it. The power is not in the mindset of only for a while. The, this point that he's making is how they were grieved to the point of repenting. But Brian Houston doesn't believe a theology like that. So he must twist God's word and not let those words ring out about godly repentance. See, he thinks the power is that they had this mindset, oh, it was only for a little while, which isn't even the point that Paul's making at all, nor is he pointing out that that's the power. No, he was rejoicing because they were grieved to the point of repenting. I'm 58 years old. I'm much younger than Pastor Rick Warren. (laughs) 20 days younger. And in 58 years, pastoring church for really all my adult life, along with my wife, Bobby, We've seen the joys and the blessing and God's given us incredible opportunity and there's been miracles along the way and it's a great story to tell. But there's also been disappointments. There's also been the things that when you hear of a church on the other side of the globe, maybe you never hear about. Some of the things that can bring pain, some of the things that we've had to work through. But can I tell you honestly that today, I feel as young and free-spirited and as alive when it comes to serving Jesus and building the church, being involved with him and building his church. I feel as fresh in it today as we did when we began 30 years ago. And that's, that's a choice. When I was in Bible college, our Bible college principal once said to us, no matter what happens to you in life, no matter who hurts you or What happens to you? Never develop a wounded spirit. And you know, as a young pastor or a young man learning the script to be a a, a Christian leader, I took that on board and made a decision. And I can honestly say today, there's not a single human being on the face of the earth that controls my spirit in a negative way. But the only way that that can happen is for us to make choices in life that say, this is only for a while. And when people won't make those choices, then they live under limitation that perhaps they never needed to live under. I'll go on reading the message. I love it. I know my letter upset you, but only for a while. He says in verse nine, now I'm glad, not that you were upset, but that you were jarred into turning things around. You let the distress bring you to God and not drive you from Him. The result was all gain, no loss. Distress that... Notice that the message paraphrase doesn't even come close to saying the same thing. Let me read it again. Okay, verse 8. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief 
produces death. The message that he's reading from here, okay, I mean, this is just so botched, it's ridiculous. Now I'm glad, not that you were upset, but that you were jarred into turning things around. You let the distress bring you to God, not drive you from him. The result was all gain and no loss. Well, that makes it sound like, oh, they just had the only-for-a-while attitude and no worry. They were distressed, and they were let the distress bring them to God. Isn't that great? No message of repenting and salvation and a godly grief that produces repentance. This is a completely different theology based upon a complete butchering of God's word. It drives us to God, does that. It turns us around. It gets us back in the way of salvation. We got to back this up. I want you to hear the context. Listen again. No loss. Distress that drives us to God does that. It turns us around. It gets us back in the way of salvation. It's grieved to the point of repentance. Big difference. We never regret that kind of pain. But those who let distress drive them away from God are full of regret. End up on a deathbed of regret. Nothing positive ever comes from regret. Maybe along the way, you can think of people you love. And somewhere, somehow, something got into their heart. Maybe genuinely they were hurt. Maybe they have every reason to be disappointed. Perhaps every reason to feel misunderstood. But sadly, when it comes to their God-given purpose and their God-given destiny, God-given purpose, God-given destiny. Hmm. Weird. Then, on a deathbed of regrets, only for a while, is a powerful, powerful thought when you see what it produces. Paul goes on and says, verse 11, And isn't it wonderful all the ways in which this distress has has goaded you closer to God? You're more alive, you're more concerned, you're more sensitive, you're more reverent, you're more human. I'm glad as a, not an old pastor, nowhere close to that, but as a seasoned pastor, slightly older pastor, that I'm a little more human, a little more... Just a reminder, that last section that he read, that's from the message. A good translation doesn't even say anything remotely like it. And notice by his mangling this text, basically making it sound like, oh, these people dis- suffered distress because the Apostle Paul, that big meanie boogerhead, wrote them a harshly worded email and, and, and they just, but they had the wisdom to, to take the tact of, well, this is only for a while. Sensitive sometimes. Than I was when I was a younger pastor. More passionate, more responsible. Looked at from any angle. You've come out of this with purity of heart. And that is what I was hoping for in the first place when I wrote the letter. What do you need to decide? This is only for a while. What do you need to commit? No, if you're going to teach this text correctly, the question of, 
is what sins do you need to be brought to the point of godly grief so that you repent and are saved? That's what this text is about. But this is only for a while. Sometimes in life, we have those seasons of blessings and encouragement. Other times we have seasons and circumstances that are disappointing, so challenging, can cause so much anxiety, naturally speaking, so much fear. We're no different than the Apostle Paul was in that sense. But what we do with it is critical. And coming into a new year, if I was to give you any counsel at all, it would be if there are issues that relate to 2012 or previous, that you're just going to take and bring with you into 2013, but you want 2013 to be a different year, then make that commitment that says, this is only for a while. In the same text, the Apostle Paul, he encouraged the, the Corinthians, it's in the first verse, along the lines of having a clean heart. David prayed for a clean heart. He said, create in me a clean heart, renew a right spirit with me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation and uphold me with your free spirit. That's the will of God for us, that we have a free spirit. In chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians, it starts, therefore having these promises. So it's talking about God's promises. And if you read the verse right before it, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 at the end, and when you look at what promise immediately precedes, it says, God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God. And they shall be my people. Therefore come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord God Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, it starts chapter 7, verse 1. And the promise of God is on your life. Um, okay, weird again. Uh, remember, we started at verse 14 and 6. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What fellowship accord has Christ with Belial? That's what this is all about. I will make my dwelling among them. Okay? We are the temple of the living God. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, and then I will welcome you. Man, he is a skilled, quite skilled Bible twister. He is very careful to avoid the passages that would upset the agenda that he has set for this text, because the last thing he wants to do is let God's agenda for this text come through. God's promises, the promises of a faithful God. And for the sake of God's promises, 
Sometimes we have to address issues of our heart. We have to decide this is only for a while. Otherwise, we set boundaries. We set borders. We set parameters. We li- this is nonsense. This has nothing to do with having a mindset of only for a while. Limit. And it's not God's hands is short. But it was just that we won't make the choices that enable us to move on. Yet not only that, the, the phrase, not only, only for a while, basically makes it clear that they were grieved only for a short period of time because they were grieved to the point of repenting. That's what Paul said. But boy, Brian Houston has done a masterful tap dance routine here to make sure to avoid having to talk about Godly grief that produces repentance. And to go forwards and to live in the victory that he intends for us. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now, most of us know what filthiness of the flesh is. But what about filthiness of the spirit? Do you know some people have a filthy spirit? They're negative. They're cynical. They're critical. This is, it's almost as if he knew I was going to be reviewing the sermon. So apparently I have a filthy spirit because I'm critical and pointing out how he's twisting God's word. They're jaded because they've allowed things to touch their spirit. And therefore having these promises... The Apostle Paul is encouraging them in terms of filthiness of the flesh, but also filthiness of the spirit. I think some church leaders, they have filthy spirits. They attack other ministries. They attack other churches. They attack other pastors. One of the things I love and honor about Pastor Rick Warren is you don't see him attacking other people. Quite the opposite. He's a gatherer. (laughs) Have you read his Twitter stream? Oh, good night. His anti-blogger tweets are, well, legendary and almost daily. He's an encourager. Keeping your spirit clean, it is critical. You know the power of only for a while. The scripture here teaches nothing about the power of only for a while. Instead, the power, again, is the Godly grief that produces repentance. Paul, I believe he's encouraging them to have a clean heart. And then in verse 2, I believe he's encouraging them to keep an open heart. Paul's saying to the Corinthians, remember, he had written them a letter. He had upset them. And he's saying to them, open your hearts to us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have cheated no one. Open your hearts to us. Don't allow ever anything to close you off on the inside. For the sake of God's promise on your life, therefore having these promises. Paul's saying, open your heart to us. In chapter 6, he's still, the chapter before, talking to the Corinthians. If I'm to read verses 11 and verses 12 again in the message, Listen to what Paul says, dear, dear Corinthians, I can't tell you how much I long for you 
to enter this wide open spacious life. We didn't fence you in. The smallness you feel comes from within you. What on earth? Notice his technique here. He is not reading this passage linearly. And as he's hopping backwards and forward in the text, he's switching you know, from the New King James to the message. And the message here is convoluted. Listen, oh man. We didn't fence you in. The smallness you feel comes from within you. Your lives aren't small, but you're living them in a small way. It's so easy to get to a point where we feel like somebody else's attitude is restricting us. And you're living life in a small way. I assure you, nothing in the Greek even remotely comes close to this. Well, this circumstance restricted us. But it's not the circumstances that ultimately set the boundaries in our life. It's the issues in our heart. And we can start feeling restricted. We can start feeling fenced in by the attitude of somebody else and let other people control and rule our spirit. And Paul is saying, and I think it's put so beautifully in the message, we didn't fence you in. He says, your lives aren't small, but you're living them in a small way. And would you let me say to you today, knowing what I know about God's heart towards people, what God has for you is not small. And oftentimes, it's not as though our life is small, but we can hold on to things and let things clutter our spirit and hold on to hurt and we can stop there. And we can, because of that, be living our lives in a small way. I don't want to be a small-spirited, small-minded old man. When I grow old, I don't want to be a grumpy old pastor. (laughs) Talking about the younger generation and what they're doing. I want to be a happy old pastor. In fact, I've just been hearing about the Daniel plan. I want to be a lean, mean kingdom machine in Jesus' name. I want to be a happy pastor, speaking life into people. Speaking encouragement, speaking faith, speaking joy. I want to be young and healthy and vital in Jesus' name. I don't know whether you're allowed to do this in Saddleback, but hey, you know, who wants to live? He's doing push-ups on the stage. Live your life old. I want to live my life young and free-spirited and being able to bring life to other people in Jesus' name. God is good on the time. Amen. Sorry. I forgot you were Baptist. I'm so sorry. (laughs) Just teasing you. (laughs) Just getting my breath back in actual fact. Don't work out much, do you? (laughs) Live open-hearted. Live clean-hearted. And the third thing that I see is Paul encouraged them to have a loyal heart. If I go and read verse 3, he says, I do not say this to condemn you, for I've said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Paul is saying that what was in his heart 
was to do life with the Corinthians. I do believe that. <laughs> what does the phrase even mean, to do life? What is that? There are relationships and opportunities that we have to, to do life with people. We have people that God puts in our world. And if there's anything that the devil, who's a defeated foe, but if there's anything he would like to do to keep our lives small, is to allow things to rule in our hearts where we never learn. The, the devil wants to keep our lives small. Ooh, sounds deadly to me. The power of saying only for a while. No mature Christian who is seasoned in the word has any defendable excuse for living their life offended. Can I say that again? No mature Christian who is seasoned in the word has any defendable excuse for living their life offended. That doesn't mean offenses won't come. Jesus said offenses will come. Sometimes life hurts. Sometimes it doesn't seem fair. Sometimes when we're expecting God to work this way and he does it the other way, we can allow things to get in our heart. But there's a power in those words that just say, this is only for a while. So you can live your life with a clean heart, an open heart, and a loyal heart. Paul says it's in our hearts that we die together. Well, we won't worry too much about the dying together today. But sometimes it's the living together that can be the challenging part. And uh, here's the Corinthians. They obviously were allowing their hearts to be restricted. and Obviously were living upset because... No, they really weren't, because when you read verses 8, 9, 10, and 11 in context, in a good translation, they were grieved only for a while because their grief was a godly grief that led them to repent. Ah. Well, they didn't appreciate the rebuke they had received, but they were wise enough, they were wise enough to make that decision that said, this is only for a while. Okay, backing it up, you need to hear what he just said. This is a complete botching of this text. Well, they didn't appreciate the rebuke they had received, but they were wise enough, they were wise enough to make that decision that said, this is only for a while. Yeah, see, they, that, that mean old Paul, him and his doctrines and stuff like that, oh, we didn't appreciate that letter, but oh, their attitude was, oh, no worries, only for a while. No, they were brought to repentance. That's what the text says. And he is making sure not to say that. Beautiful, powerful words, those. Beautiful, powerful words when people know the power of only for a while. What is it in your world? 
What is it in your life? It could be as much as disappointment with God or a hurt that, well, yes, the way you feel is justified. But if you allow it to stay an issue in your heart, it's just going to make your life small. It's not what God called you to. And you know, there are things in this world that can take a while when it comes to working through things and, you know, knowing how to go to God for comfort and keeping the, those God relationships in our world and knowing the power of being under the sound of the Word of God and it encouraging us and building us. It can take a while. But Paul was wise enough in his circumstances to know where to go for encouragement and not close off and shut down and make his life smaller. And therefore, he was able to live a life that at that time took him further than practically anyone had been in the then known world, not only geographically, but in terms of opportunity and influence. And sadly, Sadly, many people, it's not as though what God has for them is small. It's not as though what God wants for them is small. They just allow something to keep them small. And those are the things I would encourage you in 2013 to decide this is only for a while. It's a beautiful feeling when you wake up after having something that's really held on to your heart, a grief, a disappointment, have something and wake up one day. All of a sudden, when the sun went down last night, you didn't let it go down on that wrath or wrath or wrath or however you may say it here in the United States of America. You didn't let the sun go down on it. And therefore, the sun didn't come up the next morning with that still on it. You know, some people, the sun simply doesn't shine in their life any longer. Because I've let the sun go down on so many things that when the sun comes up in the morning and those things are still shading the sun, it's almost like a total eclipse. And what is it that we can say coming out of a year, into a new year, that when the sun goes down, it's not going to go down with this anger or this disappointment or this hurt or this feeling any longer and hey it may take a while but with that kind of commitment it's amazing with giving it a while what God can do to give you a freeness on the inside that keeps you big spirited on the inside that opens you up to God's purpose when it comes to his will and his plan on the outside Father I just thank you for the power of your word Okay, done. He's praying, and I'm not going to let him pray. (sighs) Wow. He literally bent God's word into a pretzel, literally distorted it in order to avoid at all costs making the point that's actually made in this text. And the point, let me read it again. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. 
For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Brian Houston literally did everything in his power, pulled out every hermeneutical twisting technique that you could possibly think of, going backwards in the text, forwards in the text, switching to the message paraphrase, everything he could do to make sure not to make the point that the text makes. And what would you expect from somebody who is a word of faith heretic? They are not men of God or women of God. None of the above. They are agents of the devil, and the devil is a liar and a deceiver. That's why when they get the pulpit or get on stage, they lie and they deceive by tampering with and distorting God's word. Dangerous days that we live in. And this happened at Saddleback, the premier flagship church of the entire purpose-driven movement. Should tell you something. All right, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>